Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, June 16th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Maya Sargent. And here are this week's feature stories. There's a new music initiative called Composing Inclusion that connects students with professional musicians and composers. The recent concert in May brought together Juilliard prep students with New York Philharmonic players. So I sat down with the initiators that made this collaboration possible. Music students from Juilliard's Music Advancement Program had the unique opportunity to improve their skills alongside some of the best players in the world. They've been learning from musicians in the New York Philharmonic in a collaboration with the American Composers Forum. It's called Composing Inclusion. The program has received funding from the Sphinx Venture Fund for two years, and it hopes to bridge the gap between students and working professionals. What would it look like for students who are more intermediate to advanced level junior high and high school students for the most part to be able to sit side by side with the most advanced professional classical musicians in the world in a way that the students can engage with the music in a way that's appropriately challenging for them and the same thing for the professional musicians. That's Weston Sprott, the Dean and Director of the Juilliard Preparatory Division. He created Composing Inclusion alongside Vanessa Rose, Executive Director of American Composers Forum, and Gary Padmore, Vice President of Education and Community Engagement at the New York Philharmonic. Weston, Vanessa and Gary selected nine composers to create new pieces to be performed by Juilliard Preparatory students and New York Philharmonic players. Their premiere concert took place at David Geffen Hall in early May. Weston, Vanessa and Gary had clear goals for their new side-by-side learning initiative, which allows students to play beside professional musicians during their concerts. They hope to build the intergenerational bond between students and professional musicians, elevate living composers from diverse backgrounds, and engage with the local community. And Weston says the composer selection process revolved around these goals. Having a pretty thorough interview process where we ask them about different ways that they want to connect their work to the ideas of the community that, that we're in and how they might want to work with students and how they, would, how they would include multiple voices in their work. One of the composers is Jordan Davis. She wrote a piece titled, As I Am. Vanessa Rose says some of the final pieces had concrete ties to New York City life. Trevor Weston, one of the composers, shared how his inspiration for this piece was the subway. The subway is something everybody here in New York can connect with. And so talked about specific sounds. Gary Padmore from the Philharmonic says side-by-side concerts are great learning experiences for all involved, including students, professionals and composers. He says the Philharmonic players were just as excited to work with the students. There's learning happening on both sides. I think for the professional musician, um, an opportunity to be in a position to, to really understand like, you know, who are the emerging young artists um, and what they, what they desire to contribute to the art form. Ultimately, it's a relational relationship that's being built. Gary says he hopes the longevity of this relationship will motivate other professional orchestras across the country to engage with their community. This is an important step for us as far as educators, as far as orchestras, 
Um, so I think the more folks we can get um, invested in that and committed to to really investing in a, in a creative way where we're featuring living composers and and working with with um, young people, um, I think it's, it will be essential. And he hopes the program will inspire change. I mean, the Philharmonic is 182 years old. In that span of history, we've had three Black tenured musicians in the orchestra. We have a lot of work to do. You know, a lot of folks see us on this ivory tower. He says engaging with the local community is the way to do this. The more we can be invested in, in building relationships and sharing our culture and not necessarily like, you know, trying to come in to, to give culture as if a person doesn't have it themselves. I think it's something that we you know, are looking at. Gary, Vanessa and Weston say they're excited about the next year of composing inclusion. Plans for a percussion ensemble and woodwind ensemble are already in the works. And Weston says they've slated another side-by-side -side concert. For next year, we're already planning to do another young person's concert with the Philharmonic on April 20th, 2024. And that's going to be a side-by-side -side with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and the pre-college orchestra. Weston says they are considering the next steps to build upon this intergenerational conversation, share New York City-specific stories, and expand their community through music. There's a lot of different ways to think about community, whether that's based on interest or based on proximity. And in this case, we're able to bring together both of those things in a way that was really meaningful for everybody. Gary, Vanessa and Weston hope composing inclusion is a way for orchestra members to reflect the community of New York City. They're looking forward to the next year ahead, connecting students with musicians and composers alike. I'm Maya Sargent, WFUV News. That was my co-host, Maya Sargent, talking with the initiators of the Composing Inclusion program. New York City now uses a new system in primary and special elections for all local offices. It's going to change the way residents are able to vote for who they want to be in office. WFUV's Jay Doughty explains how it works. It's called Ranked Choice Voting and it was enacted in New York City through a 2019 ballot measure that changed the way New Yorkers vote for their local offices. Here's how it works. Instead of just choosing one candidate, voters have the option to rank up to five candidates in order of preference. If any candidate receives more than 50% of the first choice votes, they win outright. But if no one reaches that threshold, the counting process continues in rounds. After each round, the candidate with the fewest votes gets eliminated. Now, here's the interesting part. If a voter had ranked the eliminated candidate as their first choice, their vote is transferred to their next highest ranked candidate who is still in the running. This reallocation of votes keeps going until there are only two candidates left. And then, the candidate with the most votes at the end of this process is declared the winner. Experts say this system is designed to offer voters a greater range of choice. If your first place candidate doesn't win, goes in last actually, then you still have some sort of vote, right? Um, I think that's sort of the, the driving factor. That's Rachel Harding. She's the chair of the Campaign Compliance and Election Law Group at a New York City law firm. She says that the use of ranked choice voting is a big shift, not just because it gives voters more choice, but also because proponents hope it may make politics friendlier. You know, there's another driving factor, I'm not quite sure how much this has played out, that it creates a sort of friendlier campaigning environment instead of being cutthroat and candidates going after each other, uh, especially personally. Um, the whole point of this is for candidates to kind of join forces. You know, the system is still new to New York. Only time will tell. But certainly people, I think, want that friendlier environment. 
So I think that's a positive for um, constituents as well. But it's not all perfect. Harding says the lack of continuity between federal, state, and city voting systems is going to create a lot of confusion for voters in New York City. You're having ranked choice Manhattan, this happened, right? You're having ranked choice voting in almost every election on the ballot. You flip over the ballot and then all of a sudden it's the DA's office and you have to only choose one, right? I think that's very complicated, uh, confusing, and quite honestly creates a sort of um, distrust in the system of why am, I, why am I voting this way and flipping the ballot and voting the other way. So if a system offers voters more options, does it always end up being more confusing? Let's ask Dr. Jordan Ellenberg, a professor of mathematics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I want to separate out mathematical challenges from political challenges. Mathematical challenges, honestly, I think no. I think this is a pretty simple system. People have been talking about it for many, many decades. We kind of know how it works. I think politically, this system captures the will of the voters better, but there's no question that that will be a political test. The goal of any system is obviously to capture the will of the voters. On the surface, this task seems obvious, but things can get tricky when you have complex elections with more than two candidates. That's when the math equation turns into a political science question. The one thing that we know mathematically is there's just really no way to define what the will of the voters is, right? I mean, the voters want a lot of different stuff. Some of those things yeah. are in conflict with each other. And so, you know, often, I mean, there are many elections where it's not close and it's very clear what the will of the voters are. But in a complex election where things are close, um, unless there's just two candidates and the voters are choosing between them, there's simply no one obvious thing to mean by the will of the voters. Dr. Ellenberg then makes a good point. Terms like fairness can often be too ambiguous in the context of voting systems. As citizens, we're left with no choice but to trust in a particular system. Dr. Ellenberg says the ultimate goal of any voting system boils down to one word, legitimacy, or ensuring that everyone agrees the system is seen as valid and credible from start to finish. I would say probably the best goal we can hope for is what you would call legitimacy, where everybody involved, whether their candidate wins or loses, can say, okay, the rules were what the rules were, they weren't cooked to favor one candidate or another. People felt they had their say. And, I, you know, I think that RCV actually will provide somewhat more legitimacy than the current system, exactly because people who don't closely identify with one of the two big parties, I think very rightfully will feel much more like they have a chance to have their say. That's a huge number. Like if you look at what percentage of Americans identify as Democrats and what as Republicans, that's probably like roughly tends to be about a third each and then the other third don't. That's a lot of voters. And within the academic community, the opportunity for election officials to have more data to work with as opposed to less is a plus. And in Dr. Ellenberg's eyes, a step in the right direction. So I think for a long time, there was a general idea that, well, ranked choice voting, theoretically, it makes sense, but it's going to be too complicated for people. People are going to be confused. People are going to like revolt against it if you ask them to do it. I think several places have rather boldly decided to take the step of actually trying it, and New York being one of them. And I think all the evidence is that it works fine, and people are not confused. I, I, I kind of thought it would always be like a curiosity that sort of like academic societies would use to vote because they're like, well, we know this is a cool method, but it'll never catch on in general. It, it's, um, you know, it, it, it makes you feel like sort of progress is possible, even in our sort of somewhat calcified political system. Early voting in New York City runs from Saturday, June 17th to Sunday, June 25th. 
Election Day in New York is officially on June 27th. I'm Jay Doherty, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Jay Doherty explaining ranked choice voting in New York City. June is Pride Month, and here at WFUV News, we're celebrating by sharing stories highlighting queer voices in New York City. This week, WFUV's Isabel Danzis takes you to Foley Square, where she talks to members of the Queer Big Apple Court marching band about the intersection of queerness, music, and performance. When I got to Foley Square, I first noticed a long truck parked on the side of the square. People started unloading huge instruments. We're talking big marching drums and brass instruments. The truck and the instruments are all a part of the Queer Big Apple Corps weekly marching band rehearsal. And that's the sound of the band itself. The Queer Big Apple Corps was founded in 1979 as the country's third queer band, and they've been active ever since. Altogether, the group has over 200 members. The Queer Big Apple Corps marching band takes the stage starting in March. However, they hit their stride during May to prepare for Pride season. They travel all over the East Coast, performing at Pride parades during June and other performances during the rest of the summer months. You know, our mission is kind of twofold. We serve two audiences. We serve the people in the band by being just a really great space to gather and do something together. And all of these people have jobs, but they're also musicians, and it gives them a really great place with a fantastic community to come and be musicians and make music together. That was Jason Cannon, the executive director of the Queer Big Apple Corps. He says on top of serving the band members, the group is also a loud and visible representation of the entire queer community. I mean, we run the gamut of everything. We have, I think we did a survey last year with band members and we have, I think, 15 separately identified genders and eight separately identified sexual orientations. And um, we're all ages and all ethnicities and all backgrounds and all cultural backgrounds. So it's just a great visible representation of how the entire community can come together and make music. Cannon says the band has become family to many people. Emerita Begley, the band's artistic director, agrees. She says that today, there are so many pockets within the queer community that sometimes it can be tough for people to find where they fit in. Now we have um we have a very diverse community, but that can also make you feel isolated. Like living in an apartment building, you're living in a building with hundreds of people and you know none of them. Begley started with the Queer Big Apple Corps in 1982. During her time with the band, she's seen it change. Begley says when she first joined the band, there were only 12 people and they performed only a few times throughout the Pride season. Begley says the band was mainly a place for people to be out. It became a family for me in a slightly different way than today. Uh, you know, I needed people to tell me that it was okay to be gay. I don't think the kids today need quite need that, not, not like we did, maybe some do. Now, with many more performances and members, the band's mission has expanded. It serves as a way to counter the feelings of isolation that can sometimes come with being queer. Matt Wise is a member of the Queer Big Apple Corps. 
He joined the band in 1987 after meeting the group at a lemonade stand fundraising event. He says he has also been able to watch the band grow and evolve. Well, yeah, we were struggling back in the 80s. Um, we were a small group, and I think our focus was more about protesting, like, you know, in your face. They used to say we were um, not your mother's marching band. And since I've come back, the band is huge. We're like over 100 people, and everybody's young, and it's all about love and having fun. The band also feels like family to Wise. He says it has shaped his life in many ways. First of all, I have to say, after I joined, um, there was another group that was connected called Hot Lavender Swing Band, which was like a Glenn Miller style band. And I met my husband there, he's a trumpet player. Um, so the band is like family to us. There are people here that have known us for 35 years. For other members like Cat Ho, the band serves as a form of activism. In terms of what that means for like activism, it's showing them that, hey, the queer group is more than just what you may perceive it to be. It's more than just a binary that exists. It's a group of people and a massive community that exists here. Jason Cannon, the executive director you heard from earlier, says the visibility the band has has never been more important. If you just listen to the news all day, we're getting vilified. And I say, you know, and I'm not a young man, and I feel like it's almost as bad as it ever was in terms of vilification of what it means to be trans and what it means to be queer. And when people see us, our performances are nothing but joyous. And so instead of having this picture of, I'm not even going to say the words that get said about us, uh, you know, in some circles, but instead what you're seeing is just incredible harmony, fantastic performances, and just jubilance throughout the street. Among other events, the Queer Big Apple Corps is set to perform at New York City's Pride Parade on June 25th. I'm Isabel Danzis, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking to members of the Queer Big Apple Corps about the importance of the band and queer spaces in music. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard today, exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Maya Sargent. And I'm David Escobar. 